Thank you for joining us for another edition of Behind the Editor's Curtain with Don Corrigan. Each edition focuses on points of interest relating to the environment and the community. And now, here's Don. Well, Environmental Echo this morning is talking to Peter Dykstra, and Peter Dykstra is a journalist in the environmental area. He's been an independent environmental journalist for some years. He's worked with Environmental Health News, Greenpeace, CNN, the Pew Charitable Trust with their environmental group, and he's a board member of the Society of Environmental Journalists. So. I'm Don Corrigan, and I'm a member of the Society of Environmental Journalists, and I've always been impressed by Peter Dykstra, his knowledge, his sense of humor in dealing with a lot of these issues, essentially his seriousness. And one of the things that I think is worthwhile taking a look at is he's covered some of the issues around St. Louis, like the 1993 Mississippi River floods, and of course, flooding has been a big issue in St. Louis just the last couple years. The Merrimack River Valley has had two 500-year floods uh, consecutively in the last two years. So I'm interested in talking with him about that. But Peter, welcome to Environmental Echo. How you doing? Doing great, right, Don. Thanks for, uh, thanks for inviting me on the show. I frequently mention SEJ in my podcasts, and I thought it might be good to tell listeners a little bit about what the Society of Environmental Journalists is all about. I got involved in SEJ in its second year of existence. It was um, sort of con- conceptually founded in 1990. you got to remember that 1990 was the second wave of political and public and corporate and media concern about the environment. The first one was around 1970, and that's, of course, when um, no less an environmental president than Richard Nixon created NOAA, the Science and uh, Weather and Oceans and Atmosphere Agency. He created the EPA. Mm -hmm. Um, He signed the Clean Air Act. He signed the Endangered Species Act. And there was this wave of environmental laws that came into existence as the environmental movement was, uh, the nonprofit advocacy environmental movement was created and a lot of environmental journalism was created. Then you fast forward two decades to 1990, and you're dealing with the wake of the Exxon Valdez uh, oil spill disaster. Uh, Chernobyl had just happened a few years before the Bhopal chemical disaster. Over 7,000 people died in India. It just happened. We're beginning to learn more about the ozone hole. We're beginning to learn more about climate change and global warming. Mm -hmm. And that created a big rise in interest in reporting on the environment. A lot of people got together, including one of the early ones who was a supporter for the Post-Dispatch named Bob Engelman. That early group um, was spurred into action in part by something that was said by Sam Donaldson. A lot of folks who watch news back around 1990 might remember Sam Donaldson as sort of a loud, boisterous Hold, hold on, Mr. President, right? Hold on, Mr. President. Hold on, Mr. President. And he had this booming baritone voice, and he'd ask Ronald Reagan questions, and Ronald Reagan would pretend not to hear them, so he didn't have to answer them. But Sam Donaldson was um, taken off the White House beat. He was given a new show by ABC News. It's called Primetime Live. And it was one of the first um, sort of 60 Minutes clones on the air. 
And a reporter asked Sam Donaldson uh, if this was a demotion going from the high profile of the White House beat to uh, a weekly show. And Sam Donaldson said, well, it's not like they're shifting me to the ecology beat or anything like that. Doing what we do for a living and reporting on science and the environment was the absolute lowest rung on the political ladder that this famous reporter could think of. And folks got their backs up a little bit and thought we had to get together and uh, meet and discuss our issues and uh, maybe even stick up for ourselves a little bit. SCJ was founded its first meeting was in 1991 in Boulder, Colorado. They have an annual meeting every time since. The most pessimistic spin I could give on the value of SCJ is that it's kind of a lonely heart club for newsrooms that have one person, <laughs> one man or woman, reporting on the environment. Uh, all of a sudden, everybody's together for a five-day conference every year. Uh, this year is going to be in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the fall. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, uh, I guess like St. Louis, there's a, a city with a pretty good environmental story to tell. And we're going to get together and just discuss all of the um, stories. And with the advent of the Trump administration and the return of climate denial and the CEO of ExxonMobil showing up as... Uh, uh, at least for the time being, as Secretary of State, I can't imagine a more interesting time to get together and talk about environmental politics and environmental news. So um, we're going to have ourselves an interesting meeting this year. Sure. It's a great organization. Yeah, there's a couple things I'd like to talk about and comment on on what you've told us so far about SEJ. The one thing we used to have in St. Louis, a chapter of, of Green Republicans, and the Green Republicans would always defend the Republican Party and say, you know, we have Teddy Roosevelt, we have Richard Nixon, who got these environmental laws started, and the EPA. What happened? I know, I know the Green Republicans have since disbanded. If you talk to them, they're not even meeting as a Lonely Hearts Club. They've just thrown up their hands and said, you know, this party is not representing our interests at all. Well, it's, it's, it's become a very, very partisan issue. And the League of Conservation Voters, um, which does a scorecard, it advertises itself as as a nonpartisan political action. I'm not sure there is such a thing on the environment anymore because the disparities between what the Republicans uh, and what the Democrats have come to value are so strong. And let me give you one example of that. Uh, LCB, the League of Conservation Voters, puts out a scorecard and it rates every member of Congress every year on how LCB feels it's performed, uh, each uh, senator, each uh, congressman has performed on the environment based on the votes that they take on congressional bills. And in 1980, one of the first scorecards that came out, there was a young congressman from Georgia who scored 15 points higher in LCB's estimation than another young congressman from the state next door in Tennessee. And the congressman from Georgia who got a 50% approval rating from uh, LCB was Newt Gingrich. And the young congressman from Tennessee who got a 35% approval rating from LCB was Al Gore. Um, And if you wanna talk about how things have changed and how party beliefs and ideologies sort of been cast in stone in the way that they weren't half a century ago with Richard Nixon or even 20 years ago uh, during the Reagan years or mm-hmm. certainly 100 years ago with Teddy Roosevelt, Republican, uh, what many people feel is the greatest conservation uh, president we'll ever see. Sure. Amazing um, stories with him. Things have changed. Things have changed a lot. And serious talk of climate change being a hoax 
has uh, has re-entered the national debate. And it's all a little mind-boggling. I had no idea we were going to head in this direction, but we, we clearly are. Well, I remember attending the SEJ conference last year, and they, they always, before a big general election, talk about what's going to happen with one president or the other president. And I was surprised that uh, in one of these sessions, one of them said, you know what, it, it doesn't matter if Donald Trump gets elected. We don't think he will get elected, but the momentum on these issues is global, and the Paris Climate Change Agreement is not going to be turned back. And this speaker also said that when it comes to fossil fuels, that uh, in fact the market will take care of that, whether Donald Trump gets elected or not, because we're now at a point where cleaner energy is more economical. I thought that was a little Pollyannish at the time, but does that sort of perspective on what happens with the American presidency, are there other forces out there that um, bode well for the environment regardless of who the American president is? Well, you know, um, having the environmental movement rely on market forces to serve its best interests doesn't exactly have a really good history of success behind it. And uh, if ever alarmism were the right thing to do in terms of where the American presidency is going to go, the um, if, uh, Don, you and I were having this conversation a year ago, and I said to you that the longtime CEO of ExxonMobil is going to be our next Secretary of State, you would have thought I'd completely flipped my gourd, or that I was telling a joke that wasn't funny. You talk about worst-case scenarios, and one of the things about reporting on science and the environment is that you get obligated to talk about worst-case scenarios. From a political standpoint, this is the worst-case scenario. For anyone who values a clean and healthy environment in this country, and it's not a case of one rogue president, and my president is one-third of the three branches of our government. So you're already talking about a third of the government, Congress in the hands of a party that's been increasingly hostile to environmental protection, and a Supreme Court, with uh, Neil Gorsuch, ironically, being the uh, uh, new Supreme Court Justice, the son of a former scandal-plagued EPA administrator. You've got all these things happening. And Gorsuch, I guess. Ann Gorsuch was mm-hmm. Donald Reagan's uh, EPA administrator, and her number two took the fall and went off to prison for a scandal involving the Superfund cleanup program. Ann Gorsuch uh, didn't get indicted, didn't go to prison, but she was forced to resign in one of the early scandals about dismantling EPA. Yeah, I remember that all time. Of those things that uh, a lot of the Reagan folks mused about and uh, hoped would happen in terms of weakening environmental protection. We're seeing them actually underway right now. And one of the reasons that that's a problem is that the news cycle, what happens in your, your and my business, is that we all get so easily distracted by the story of the day. And when you have a president of the United States who has an itchy um, Twitter finger every, every morning at 3 o'clock and says something that's a little cuckoo on Twitter, that becomes the story of the day. And it gives more cover to the dismantling of the kind of protections that I think a lot of people rightfully feel in this country. They've, uh, they're owed as taxpayers and voters, and they're owed from their federal government. A lot of people feel there's too much involvement from states or even cities, and certainly from the federal government. 
but that's all acting itself out on the national stage right now. And it could have huge repercussions for the way that we deal with our environment. Certainly, Neil Gorsuch as the Supreme Court justice who is going to tip the scales, no pun intended, on a lot of Supreme Court decisions for the rest of his natural life for as long as he chooses to stay a Supreme Court justice. Those things are changed for all intents and purposes for the rest of your and my natural lives. And that's not something we can dismiss. It's not like a scene from The Wizard of Oz where everybody just says, don't worry about it, the wizard will take care of it. So what you're telling me is fairly depressing for environmentalists. Does that mean the Pittsburgh convention uh, that's coming up is going to be pretty much crying and gnashing of teeth, or, or what positive things, what can be taken away from that? Well, you know, the stuff that we do every uh, every day with environmental health news and daily climate is, we write some of our own, but we mostly aggregate um, environmental news from around the globe. Environmental news, by its nature, is not a happy field. It's just not a happy field. There are success stories, there are good news stories, but it's by its nature, you're talking a lot about cancer clusters, and you're talking about extinction waves, uh, you're talking about loss of habitat, you're talking about changing uh, ocean acidification, changing the very chemistry of the oceans based on what humanity has contributed to them, in addition to contributing apparently an appalling amount of plastic waste that will also never go away in our lifetime. The news out there isn't good, and our job is to report the news, whether it's good or not. Sometimes it's a little depressing. Sometimes it's a little frustrating. But the only way to fix what apparently is a growing problem is you start fixing a problem by talking about the problem. That's kind of where we are. Let's talk a little bit about your career personally, because you've covered the environment for, for years. Can you tell us a little bit of, of you know some of the stories that you'll always remember covering? And since we are originating from St. Louis... How about those 1993 Mississippi River floods? What do you learn from each story that you cover? Well, there's um, an environmental advocacy group that has uh, its own little saying. It says, nature bats last. And that's, uh, that's what you learn every time the Mississippi River or any river in the United States, the Merrimack, you mentioned the floods there in recent years. And that also was the site going back many years of the dioxin problems that the town of Times Beach, a town that was bought out by the EPA because of risks of pollution and health damage. Sometimes we learn from uh, history, sometimes we don't learn from history. I grew up in New Jersey. I grew up in the, the northern part of Jersey next to the Hackensack Meadowlands, maybe most famous because they played a Super Bowl there a few years ago, or maybe less famous because it's the alleged final resting place of Jimmy Hoffa and a whole lot of toxic waste. Uh, <laughs> basically the dumping ground for um, the whole New York, New Jersey area. This was one of the most productive wetlands and estuaries of any area along the east coast of North America. I used to go up there and just sort of slog through the relatively pristine, protected salt marshes on Cape Cod. They're still in pretty good shape. And then one day when I was about 12 years old, it dawned on me that the absolute carcinogenic filth of the Hackensack Meadowlands that I grew up next to and the nearly pristine condition of these other wetlands in the Cape Cod National Seashore those two things were supposed to be the same thing, and how did we get to a point in, uh, as a society where one became literally a dumping ground, it became filthy, you know, what's the science behind it, what's the mm-hmm. ecology behind it, what's the money behind it, what's the, how did all that happen? 
Mm-hmm. And starting at about age 12, I became fascinated with uh, things like that. I've dealt with uh, the advocacy side of it. I worked for Greenpeace for quite a while, worked for the Pew Environment Group. Uh, and in between, I worked for CNN for 18 years. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, you, you talk about how areas change and how they're, you know, they're pristine and then they end up being dumping grounds. Here in St. Louis, we have a lot of people my age who remember playing on Coldwater Creek and the other creeks in northwest St. Louis County. And now, you know, they say they're experiencing cancers and leukemias and they're finding out that it's kind of like an atomic age story that when the atomic bomb yellow cake was developed here in St. Louis a lot of the waste materials just ended up being shipped there and dumped in those areas and of course you're probably familiar with our landfill that's burning up in that area and the fact that underground fire grows closer to where radioactive material is stored from that area it's always interesting to me that it's It's always mothers and women that seem to take up these causes because I think they're more affected by it from a maternal standpoint. What advice would you have for, you know, we have several women's groups working on this right now in St. Louis. What advice do you have for them from your experiences to how to get the government or somebody to react to their issue and their problem? Well, I guess I can't speak from my experience as a mother, but I can probably fill in a few of the other blanks on all of that. Look at the, um, uh, I would ask people to look at some of the role models, the most famous of which, and maybe the most inspiring of which is a woman named Lois Gibbs. Was I'm sorry, her name is 19- Lois, her name is Lois? Uh, Lois Gibbs, G-I-B-B-S. Okay. Uh, and she was pretty standard issue housewife in uh, Niagara Falls, New York, in a community called Love Canal. And Love Canal was uh, a community of houses that were built on top of a particularly nasty toxic waste dump. And the school for that community was built square in the middle of what was a particularly nasty toxic waste dump. Love Canal had a lot of those same cancers and other diseases. It became the symbol. It became the inspiration for Superfund, and it all happened because this one woman who had never been active in politics before, who was just there to do an honorable job raising a family, all of a sudden realized that the best way she could raise her family and protect her family was to raise hell about what had been done to her community. The Love Canal story is still, uh, dating from the late 70s, is, is still the iconic story about how one mom saw a situation that had deserved her anger and did something about it, brought the problem to its attention. EPA had to start the Superfund program, which obviously has had a mixed track record, but at least it's got some sites cleaned up. Mm -hmm. And the Love Canal neighborhood, at least the center of it, the core of it, was bought out. And the company that eventually bought the... um, the Hooker Chemical Company was the name of the original polluters. They had an ungodly mess of toxic waste just stored beneath this quintessential suburban blue-collar American neighborhood. And we could no longer ignore the fact that that kind of situation happens everywhere. There are, um, there have been somewhere around, I think it's 15 to 1700 Superfund sites, and we don't have a very good track record at making all of them clean, but at least we're taking a stab at it. And a lot of that has happened 
because moms who have as their first priority in life protecting their kids and giving them a shot at living in a clean and healthy environment have taken the lead. I think that's. Um, I think so that, I would start by reading up on Lois Gibbs. Okay. Yeah, I think that's good advice, and I think that's what's always impressed me. On every environmental issue, there are always mothers that are out front. I remember when the um, nuclear waste from the Three Mile Island disaster came through, and I got a grant from Gannett to cover all the different protests along the tracks. It was always mothers who were out front and making noise. I think they're some of the best environmentalists that you have out there. Well, Peter, I don't want to take a lot more of your time, but I know a lot of SEJ members are concerned that you've had some health issues this year. Are you going to make it to Pittsburgh? Can you tell us what your situation is right now? Yeah, I hope to. And um, I have no idea if my situation was environmentally inspired, but I haven't haven't had exactly a fun year. I got a um, staph infection in my spine, and um, literally overnight I went from a fairly normal existence to being a paraplegic. So if I show up in Pittsburgh at the SEJ meeting, it's going to be in a wheelchair. At the very least, uh, if I can't make it up there, I'll follow it from afar, and the way that other folks can follow this organization as well. Mm-hmm. is by clicking onto their website, which is sej.org. Well, thank you for your time this morning, Peter. I hope to see you in Pittsburgh. We'll see how things go from here, and I sure appreciate your time this morning talking about these issues. So we'll talk with you soon. Anytime, my friend, and uh, for better or worse, we will still have plenty to talk about. Well, that is for sure. The plate when it comes to environmental journalism is fuller than ever, so... Thanks again for your time, Peter. All right. Okay, thanks, Don. This is Don Corrigan for Environmental Echo. I hope you enjoyed our interview today. Have a good green day, folks.